All right, enough talk about the research paper. Let's talk about the Odyssey. I'm not sure which order you're listening to these lectures in. Um, whatever you do, that's up to you. Um, for me, I spent all of last week working on those videos on research and writing papers. Um, so this is my first time coming back to the actual text since we talked about um, Polyphemus and Odysseus's voyages um, in the Odyssey. Uh, so today we're going to talk about Odyssey 11 and 12, meaning uh, Odysseus's voyage into the dead, realm of the dead, um, as well as his adventures with Scylla and Charybdis and the ultimate destruction of his ship. Um, so basically the conclusion of his whole um, adventure uh, recounting to uh, his hosts um, among the Phaeacians. So a couple of businessy things first. This is going to be the only actual Odyssey lecture for this week. Uh, rather than try and record two lectures on top of all the uh, research and writing stuff, I'm just going to do the one. Um, so you can figure, like, listen to the, the lectures on the research paper and listen to this lecture. You're good for this week. And then for next week, we will talk about the rest of the Odyssey. Um, I'll probably break that up into, like, 13 to 21 and then 22 to 24. Uh, but we'll see. I'll probably run long with that first lecture. So, so I might play around with it a little bit. Um, suffice it to say, you don't need to listen to, um, the, the lectures about odyssey 13 to 18 unless you want to before the quiz um and then likewise i expect that we'll spend most of the q a session this week talking about the research paper um so we'll talk about this section if we get the chance if not that's fine um we'll talk about it next week um but anyway at any rate we are getting close to wrapping up here like this, there are going to be three lectures left in the Odyssey. That's it. This is the first of those three. Um, I'll do one lecture on uh, Oedipus Rex, and then we'll be into final territory. Like, that's all there is to this class, um, which means that all the end projects are coming up on us. Like, by now, it's probably only a week or two before um, the research paper is due, so you should definitely be on top of that. The final exam will be due a week or two after that, so... So we should be pretty busy, but we should always also be wrapping up pretty quickly, um, for better or worse. So I hope that the, the online transition has been too rough on you. I know a lot of students have been struggling with it. Um, again, as always, let me know if you're having trouble, if you want to make stuff up. Um, as a rule, any writing assignment I will accept late. Um, the quizzes and the discussion boards I can't do anything about, obviously. Um, but if it's the research paper or one of the old response papers or the comparison paper, by all means, get it to me whenever you can. Um, I'll give you a grade, even if I dock some points off of it. But enough to do about business and bureaucracy and research papers and such. Let's talk about the Odyssey. Um, so when we left off... Odysseus was recounting his adventures to the Phaeacians. Um, he had finally left Calypso's island after being stranded there for probably multiple years. Um, meanwhile, like, we haven't seen them since book two or three, but Telemachus and Penelope and all the suitors are still bumming around on, on Ithaca. Uh, and for the most part, the, the suitors are causing trouble all the time. Like, we haven't seen them. We haven't had any, like, jumps in the text to the suitors. Um, you will notice that after Odysseus's big story ends, the, we get a couple of passages where, where the text like pays attention to Telemachus and Penelope and the suitors and everything. Um, but less and less as the story goes on. 
Um, and for the most part, our version omits those sections. Like, uh, Lombardo prefers to focus on Odysseus himself rather than seeing what the suitors are up to. Largely because, like, they their plots don't really go anywhere. Um, like, obviously, Telemachus never gets murdered, uh, despite the fact that they try and assassinate him, like, three separate times. Um, but we'll come back around to that when, when we actually get to the passages that we would have jumped over, so next week. Um, but this week I want to focus primarily on Odysseus's hanging out with the dead, because um, there is a lot there. This is something that we've only talked about a little bit in this class so far. And there's just so much in this chapter. Like, it is incredibly dense from the standpoint of theme, from the standpoint of, like, what is the myth telling us about the world as the Greeks see it. Um, there's a lot going on with Odysseus's character and the other characters that he interacts with. Like, this is a really, really dense chapter. Um, so I want to take this apart in the most detail, and then we can discuss uh, Book 12 and everything that's going on um, with Odysseus's sort of like spiraling into destruction a little bit later. Um, so you'll remember when we left Circe's island, Circe gave Odysseus very strict instructions, like he has to go check out, um, check with Tiresias, and Tiresias is going to tell him how to make things right with the gods. Like, obviously Odysseus is cursed. You'll remember when he landed on Alcinous's island the second time, the guy who gave him the bag of winds, and he's like, what are you doing here? And Odysseus is like, my crew opened the bag of winds, and we got blown back here. And Alcinous is like, get out! Oh my gosh, you are cursed by heaven. Please stay away from me and my family. Um... This is going to take more than just a little bit of ingenuity and human effort to get Odysseus home. Poseidon is really mad. Um, so Circe says, you have to go check with Tiresias, who is dead, but he has been given his powers of being a seer. Like, he, he can still prophesy and speak cogently even after death. Um, so talk to Tiresias, he will tell you what to do, and then come back and we can start the last leg of Odysseus's voyage. Um, and everything seems to be going alright as far as that's concerned, except, again, as you'll remember, as they were getting ready to leave, Elpinor, who was apparently drunk and sleeping on the roof because bad decisions, apparently, like, tripped, fell, and killed himself. Oops. Um, so that's why the first person who Odysseus sees when he starts contacting dead people is Elpinor. Um, so if you look on page 333, around line 50 of book 11, first to come was the ghost of Elpinor, whose body still lay in Circe's hall, unmourned, unburied, since we'd been hard-pressed. I wept when I saw him, and with pity in my heart spoke to him these feathered words, Elpinor, how did you get to the undergloom before me, on foot, outstripping our black ship? I spoke and he moaned in answer, bad luck and too much wine undid me. I fell asleep on Circe's roof. Coming down, I missed my step on the long ladder and fell head first. My neck snapped at the spine and my ghost went down to Hades. Now I beg you, by those we left behind, by your wife and the father who reared you, and by Telemachus, your only son, whom you left alone in your halls, when you put the gloom of Hades behind you and beat your ship on the Isle of Aea, as I know you will, remember me, my lord. Do not leave me unburied, unmourned, when you sail for home, or I might become a cause of the gods' anger against you. Burn me with my armor, such as I have. Heap me a barrow on the grey sea's shore, in memory of a man whose luck ran out. Do this for me, and fix in the mound the oar I rode with my shipmates while I was alive. Um, and obviously Odysseus agrees. This is one of his crew members. He, like, owes this debt to him. Um, but notice that Elpinor is very concerned with his burial. Um, Elpinor is 
a dead guy talking about his death, which is a pattern we're going to see a lot in this chapter. Like, there's not that much going on with Elpenor, despite the fact that, like, the text has kind of gone out of its way to talk about Elpenor dying and now uh, meeting Odysseus here in death. Um, but do notice that, like, the main reason Elpenor wants to be buried... Um, he stresses that like this is this is for Odysseus's good. Um, Do not leave me unburied, unmourned when you sail for home, or I might become a cause of the gods' anger against you. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, well, the gods are already really mad at Odysseus. What does he care? But on the other hand, it's like this is exactly what he needs to fix. The last thing Odysseus needs is for Poseidon or somebody else to be really mad at him about this uh, irresponsibly like decomposing corpse and remember i i've stressed throughout that odysseus is at the end of the day really pious like as much as he f screws it up a couple of times uh he is very careful about what the gods want he is very careful to respect the gods we see him give sacrifices we see him petition zeus um we see him stop everything and mourn people uh this appeals to Odysseus, like, this is why, as soon as he gets back to Circe's Island in Book 12, they go out of their way to talk about the body of Elpenor, and how they specifically, like, follow all of his instructions, down to, like, planting the ore that he used to row on his grave, um, the way that Elpenor asks. Um, but next, you'll notice the next person to come out is also very closely related to Odysseus. It's Anticlea, um, the daughter of Autolycus, his mother. Um, and Odysseus's reaction to his mother is a fairly complicated one. Um, first off, remember, like, and he stresses this in line 83, she was alive when I left for, left for sacred Ilion. I wept when I saw her and pitied her, but even in my grief, I would not allow her to come near the blood until I had questioned Tiresias. Um, so on the one hand, he's shocked to see her. He didn't realize she was dead. And remember, like, it makes sense that she's dead. Odysseus at this point is probably in his 40s or 50s after, like, 30 years of bumming around Troy and stuff. So his mom is undoubtedly at least in her, you know, 60s or 70s. Um, probably even, maybe even her 80s. Um, so, you know, this is a shock to him and an unpleasant shock at that. But at the same time, he's torn. Remember, he's got a mission here. He has to make sure that all the dead stay away from the sacrifices he has made until he talks to Tiresias. Like, that's the primary goal. Those were the instructions Circe gave him. So as much as he wants to talk to his mom, like, spend time with her, he has to wait until after he has this conversation with Tiresias. Um, so we'll come back to Anticlea, because she does, in fact, get the chance to talk to her afterwards. Um, but first we have to talk about Tiresias, because this is going to very much both sort of direct and inform the rest of this epic. Like, this is very much a turning point in Odysseus's journey, because Tiresias basically tells him what is happening. Like, you'll, and you'll see that it, like it measures up a lot with what Polyphemus cursed Odysseus with earlier on in the text. Um, so Tiresias shows up and he says, Odysseus, son of Laertes, master of wiles, why have you come, leaving the sunlight to see the dead in this joyless place? Move off from the pit and take away your sword so I may drink the blood and speak truth to you. Which, of course, Odysseus does. That is the whole point. So 
you know, obviously when Tiresias asks, he lets him drink the blood so he can talk with him, honestly. Um, so then he drinks, and Tiresias says, You seek a homecoming sweet as honey, shining Odysseus, but a god will make it bitter. For I do not think you will elude the earthshaker who has laid up wrath in his heart against you, furious because you blinded his son. So the first thing that Tiresias tells him is this is not going to be easy. Like you've ticked off Poseidon. Polyphemus's prayer has been heard, has been answered by Poseidon. That's why you are in so much trouble. That's why you are cursed. Um, we kind of already knew that, but this very much confirms it for Odysseus, even more than the people who have talked to him about it before. Still, Tiresias continues, you just might get home, though not without pain. You and your men, if you curb your own spirit, and theirs too, when you beat your ship on Thrinacia. You will be marooned on that island in the Violet Sea, and find there the cattle of Helios the Sun, and his sheep too, grazing. Leave these unharmed, keep your mind on your homecoming, and you may still reach Ithaca, though not without pain. But if you harm them, I foretell doom for you, your ship and your crew. And even if you yourself escape, you will come home late and badly, having lost all companions and in another ship. And you shall find trouble in your house, arrogant men devouring your wealth and courting your wife. Notice how much this lines up with the curse that Polyphemus like flung at Odysseus as Odysseus was sailing away. Like, oh, you're Odysseus? Well, then I curse you to never make it home. Or if you are fated to make home, to make it home, that you come without your ships, without your crew, in another man's ship, with nothing in your hands, um, and find trouble when you get there. And that is what Tiresias foretells as well. Um, everything that you want at Troy will be lost if you violate the the rules and and harm the cattle of helios um and obviously that's what's actually going to happen um but notice also the the warning here uh tiresias stresses don't mess with the cows of helios don't um don't like eat any of the cattle they are sacred that will be your destruction um you might get home if you curb your spirit and theirs too when you beat your ship on Thrinacia. Now you'll notice like in book 12, Circe also gives uh, Odysseus a warning about this. So like if we hop forward just a little bit um, where Circe is giving him all the warnings about the stuff that he's going to encounter, um, around line 131 we get then you will come to thrinacia an island that pastures the cattle of the sun seven herds of cattle and seven flocks of sheep 50 in each they're immortal they bear no young and they never die off etc 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 if you leave these unharmed and keep your mind on your journey you might yet struggle home to ithaca uh, but if you harm them i foretell disaster for your ship and crew and even if you escape yourself you shall come home late and badly having lost all your companions so we are told twice in these in this many books don't mess with the cattle of the sun this is super important um so both tiresias and circe recognize that this is like the linchpin moment in the entirety of odysseus's attempt to get home like if he gets this right he'll get home no trouble if he doesn't then it's going to be a giant mess and everything is going to fall apart for him um and obviously we know from reading book 12 it's a giant mess and everything falls apart for him um 
But Tiresias has more to tell than just this warning about the about the cattle of Helios. Um, after he says, you know, you will find trouble in your house, arrogant men devouring your wealth and courting your wife, he continues, yet vengeance will be yours. And when you have slain the suitors in your hall by ruse or by sword, then you must go off again, carrying a broad-bladed oar, until you come to men who know nothing of the sea, who eat their food unsalted, and have never seen red-proud ships or oars that wing them along. And I will tell you a sure sign that you have found them, one you cannot miss. When you meet another traveler who thinks you are carrying a winnowing fan, then you must fix your oar in the earth and offer sacrifice to Lord Poseidon, a ram, a bull, and a boar in its prime. Then return to your home and offer perfect sacrifice to the immortal gods who hold high heaven to each in turn, and death will come to you off the sea, a death so gentle, and carry you off when you are worn out in sleek old age, your people prosperous all around you. All this will come true for you as I have told." Notice, this is just a part of the story. I mean, we talked in the Iliad about how, like, we only get this tiny chunk of the entire Trojan War. Like, this one part of this one year at the very end of the story, when Achilles, in fact, kills Hector after they've been on the plains of Ilion for nine years. We're getting something similar here. Like, remember, the Odyssey didn't start with, you know, the leaving of Odysseus from Troy. We do get that recounted to us in this section as Odysseus is talking to the Phaeacians, like as he is singing his own tale, as he is playing bard to his hall. Um, But really, this is also just one tiny chunk of this journey. But importantly, the journey isn't, like, as much as this is the story of Odysseus's homecoming, the story in which Odysseus does, in fact, make it home after ten years of, like, being stuck on the sea after the uh, Trojan War ended, notice Odysseus isn't going to be done. Um, Tiresias stresses, like, sure, you'll go home, you'll kill all the suitors, you'll get your vengeance, but then you have to go again. Then you have to leave... And then you have to travel so far that you have to find people who have never seen the sea before, who know nothing of the sea. And the sign that he's supposed to look for is he's like carrying an oar around and some person goes up to him and is like, oh, is that a winnowing fan? I.e. that person has never seen an oar before. He doesn't know what an oar is. Like... Keep in mind, the Greeks are a seafaring nation, obviously. Like, we've been talking about their naval prowess since the beginning of this class. They live on this giant archipelago. Um, Being able to travel in boats is a basic tenet of human life in ancient Greece. But importantly, it's also a tenet of human life basically everywhere there is civilization at this point in time. Like, the Babylonians have founded their cities on rivers. The ancient Egyptians live on the Nile. Um, Like, the Celts are absolutely seafaring nations. Like, they travel up and down the rivers of Europe. They travel across the seas to Ireland and England. Like, sea travel is an important part of basically the entirety of civilization at this point. And what Tiresias is telling Odysseus is, first, you're going to have to make a land journey. Like, a journey across the land but also a journey across the land that takes you so far away from everything that you know and are familiar with that people won't even know what the Mediterranean Sea is. They are that far removed. 
we were talking about like seriously inland Persia or, you know, deep, uh, deep into Africa, like Northern or Eastern Africa. Um, like we're talking about a huge journey on top of a huge 10 year journey. Only then is Odysseus going to be done. Only after he has left the sea so far behind that they don't even know what it is, then he will plant his oar and make a sacrifice to Poseidon, and then Poseidon will forgive him and let him travel safely. Then the gods will stop hounding Odysseus. So notice, like, because this is kind of a super important part. Even though we're not going to see that journey play out, over the course of this particular text, it's going to seriously inform like the rest of the text. As much as it's going to be cathartic when Odysseus actually makes it home, we have to remember he's not going to be there for long. He has to immediately pick up and go again. Um, he's not done. It's just going to be more travel for Odysseus. But that said, Tiresias does promise him um, that he will get a death, gentle, off the sea, when his pe his prosperous people are, are all around him. Like, if Odysseus does all of this, if Odysseus makes it home, if Odysseus kicks out the suitors, if Odysseus goes on this secondary journey to, like, find the people who don't know what an oar is, only then will Odysseus get the death that he deserves, quiet at home, surrounded by his family and his friends. Um, only then will he be truly at peace. Um, it's a lot of work, is what it comes down to. And all for that one little mistake he made, blinding Polyphemus and, you know, revealing himself to Polyphemus. Um, like, this is fairly cruel in some ways. Um, like, go travel the seas for ten years, finally get home, and then turn around and travel again for ten years, or something close to it. Um... It's ugly. Uh, so, like, obviously, um, Odysseus doesn't really appreciate the gravity of the situation at this point. Like, he's very distracted. You'll notice that his response to Tiresias' prophecy is, All that Tiresias is as the gods have spun it, but tell me this, I see here the ghost of my dead mother sitting in silence beside the blood, and she cannot bring herself to look her son in the eye or speak to him. How can she recognize me for who I am? And Tiresias says, Well, she's got a drink of the blood. And as a result, like, Odysseus starts inviting other shades to drink the blood and, like, talk to him. Um, so the rest of the chapter, like, Tiresias goes away and Odysseus is just sort of interviewing other dead people and talking to them about their experience and trying to, like, you know, interact or identify with them in some way. With some success in some cases and not so much in others. Um, but let's take some of these apart. Like, there's a lot of people that he runs into, some of which we'll recognize, some of which not so much. Um, but I do want to sort of, like, look at what Homer is saying about death itself and the realm of the dead here. Um, so, first, obviously, he beckons Anticlea to drink the blood and, you know, Anticlea, his mother, and we get this conversation between Odysseus and his mother Anticlea. Um, so she asks, My child, how did you come to the undergloom while you were still alive? It is hard for the living to reach these shores. There are many rivers to cross, great bodies of water, nightmarish streams, and ocean itself, which cannot be crossed on foot, but only in a well-built ship. Are you still wandering on your way back from Troy, a long time at sea with your ship and your men? Have you not yet come to Ithaca, or seen your wife in your halls? 
And Odysseus responds, Mother, I came here because I had to, to consult the ghost of the prophet Tiresias. I have not yet come to the coast of Achaia, or set foot on my own land. I have had nothing but hard travels from the day I set sail with Lord Agamemnon to go to Ilion, famed for its horses to fight the Trojans. But tell me truly, how did you die? Was it a long illness, or did Artemis shoot you suddenly with her gentle arrows? And tell me about my father and my son whom I left behind. Does the honor I had still remain with them, or has it passed to some other man? And do they all say I will never return? And what about my wife? What has she decided? What does she think? Is she still with my son, keeping things safe? Or has someone already married her, whoever is now the best of the Achaeans? So notice... Odysseus is taking this as an opportunity to get news about his family. Like, Anticlea presumably died only recently. Um, remember, like, it's been a couple years at this point. We got sidetracked at Circe's Island, you know, that whole, like, all my crewmates were turned into pigs, but now I'm sleeping with Circe, and this is kind of a good deal, and Odysseus forgets himself and ends up staying for over a year. Um... So it's probably been like a little while since Anticlea is dead, but this is still fairly early in the journey. Um, like this is year two or three after the Trojan War ended, not year ten um, when Odysseus is talking to Anticlea. So Anticlea, like, it's still been too long. Like people have already come home, as Anticlea seems to indicate. Um, but nonetheless, like... Odysseus is still trying to get news. Um, so his mother answers, Oh yes, indeed, she remains in your halls, her heart enduring the bitter days and nights. But the honor that was yours has not passed any man. Telemachus holds your lands unchallenged and shares in the feasts to which all men invite him as the island's lawgiver. Your father, though, stays out in the fields and does not come to the city. He has no bed piled with bright rugs and soft coverlets, but sleeps in the house where the slaves sleep, in the ashes by the fire, and wears poor clothes. In summer and autumn his vineyard slope is strewn with beds of leaves on the ground, where he lies in his sorrow, nursing his grief, longing for your return. His old age is hard. I died from the same grief. The keen-eyed goddess did not shoot me at home with her gentle shafts, nor did any long illness waste my body away. No, it was longing for you, my glorious Odysseus, for your gentle heart and your gentle ways that robbed me of my honey-sweet life. So notice the detail here. Notice the emphasis. On the one hand, Telemachus is doing all right, and so is Penelope. They haven't picked up suitors at this point. There probably aren't a whole bunch of suitors hanging around Odysseus's house. That will come later. Um, but... As much as, like, it seems to be going well for Telemachus and Penelope, uh, Anticlea also notes that uh, Laertes, Odysseus's father, is a wreck. Um, like, remember, at this point, you know, it's been ten years getting to Troy, it's been ten years at Troy, it's been several years since Odysseus should have come home, um, and Laertes is apparently beside himself. He's living in the servants' quarters, um, the vineyards that he is supposed to be tending are a wreck. They are covered with leaves and weeds, and he just stands around and grieves. Um, he lies in his sorrow, nursing his grief. And remember, we've heard this before. Both Telemachus and Odysseus were guilty of nursing or honing their grief. Um, and again, like this, this emphasis on grief, on grieving, uh, exists throughout this text. Like it is in some ways honorable to be grieving, to be miserable. Um, like, it's sad, for sure. We are meant to sympathize with Laertes. 
Um, but this is kind of the correct approach. Like the thing about Laertes is he was, you know, Odysseus's father. He was an important hero in his own right. Remember, he sailed on the Argo with Jason and company, at least according to Apollodorus. Um, he was a big deal in his own time, but now he's old. Odysseus had taken over the household. Um, and Laertes very much feels shafted. Like he depended on his son in more ways than one. And he sort of voluntarily accepted this poverty, like living in the servants' quarters and letting his fields go to pot. But notice, too, Anticlea dies from this grief. Um, she stresses, no, Artemis didn't kill me. She didn't shoot me with those, you know, soft, quiet arrows that, like, let you pass quietly and comfortably into death. No, it was longing for you that robbed me of my honey-sweet life. Um... So as much as, like, grief is occasionally an honorable thing to do, as much as, like, Odysseus is honing his grief, Telemachus and Laertes are nursing their grief, um, it's hard to say whether this is, like, indulgent or not. What it can be is dangerous. Like, Anticlea dies from grief. Uh, she dies wishing that Odysseus was back. She dies of wishing that Odysseus is back. Um, and this is a fairly common thing to see in mythology as well. Um, and I want to just, like, I don't know. I don't want to dwell on this too much because I realize that, like, we are entering weird territory in a big disconnect between the way that the modern world views depression and the way that the ancients do. Um, but there is this really important degree of mourning in ancient cultures. Um, like, as much as the family is the cent center of your world, like, we've talked about how ancient Greeks, you know, you're the father, the paterfamilias, the head of the household, this is the most important person in your life, the most respected person in your life. Um, family is everything to these people. Uh, they are what protects you, they are what gives you power, they are what gives you honor, they are ha how your name is passed on in future generations. Um... Grief, then, like losing a member of the family, is devastating. Like, we talk now about being devastated at the loss of a loved one, of a parent or a sibling. Um, but the Greeks, it's like they're so much more a part of your life, um, even more than they are in our culture. Like, we very much stress, you know, you get to, like, age... 21 you graduate from college or you get a job and the first thing you do is you move out of your parents basement um they kick you out if necessary like independence is a huge part of our culture but it never was for the greeks there's no such thing as independence as a virtue for the greeks um like as much as we see like achilles is independent or hector is independent remember loyalty is what drives these people um, Achilles is at his best when he is fighting not for himself, but for his friend Patroclus. Hector is at his best when he is fighting for his family and for the city of Troy. He has a determined connection to his mother and father, as well as his wife and ch child, all at the same time. And for that reason, grief is hugely important. We've seen it with, you know... We saw it in the Iliad, like, remember how the entire last book is devoted to the mourning over Hector, um, and many of the characters spend time mourning Hector even before he dies. Um, here we see 
Odysseus's parents basically destroying themselves in grief. Um, but this is what you're supposed to do. Like, this is the appropriate response to losing someone who is that important in your life, that important to your growth and development. Um, and I suspect that this ties as well into our theme of memory. Um, because on the one hand, we have a culture that, like, even when you are separated from your family, as Odysseus has been for, you know, again, close to 30 years at this point, um, you still remember them keenly. You still have a deep connection to Telemachus, Odysseus' son, or Penelope, his wife, or um, Anticlea, his mother, or uh, Laertes, his father. Um, all of these people are still important in Odysseus's life, despite the fact that he hasn't seen them for so long. Um, hasn't even been able to talk to them for so long. Hasn't seen Telemachus since he was a baby. Um, they are still hugely important. It is memory that keeps him going. It is memory that keeps him from eating the lotus and forgetting about home. It is memory that causes him to, you know, try and keep his crew thinking of home. And it is memory that keeps his crew thinking Odysseus, of, or keeping Odysseus thinking of home when he forgets on Circe's island. Um, forgetting is dangerous. Memory is important, but the side effects of memory are grief. Um, like a sort of immersion in one's loss. Um, so Anticlea, despite not knowing where Odysseus is, having never not seen him for over 20 years, dies of grief, dies of that absence, dies because she misses him. Um, and Odysseus's response to this is especially telling. He rushes forward to embrace her, to embrace the ghost of my dead mother. Three times I rushed forward to hug her, and three times she drifted out of my arms like a shadow or a dream. The pain that pierced my heart grew ever sharper, and my words rose to my mother on wings. Mother, why do you slip away when I try to embrace you? Even though we are in Hades, why can't we throw our arms around each other and console ourselves with chill lamentation? Are you a phantom sent by Persephone to make me groan even more in my grief? Notice the detail here, because we've heard this before. Three times he rushes forward, three times she drifts out of his arms. This should absolutely cause us to think of Apollo. Um, remember all of those times in the Iliad, like Diomedes trying to capture the body of Aeneas or Patroclus scaling the walls of Troy, and three times they rush forward and three times Apollo flicks them on the shield and they are forced to retreat. When we talked about that in the Iliad, I emphasized this is about mortality. Apollo is a god. You cannot mess with Apollo. Remember, like, the mortals are to the gods as bugs are to humans. Um, Apollo stresses your mortality will keep you in your place. Like, do not fight me. I am a god. I will end you. But as much as that is this martial image, like rushing forward and attacking a god, notice how it's flipped here. Three times Odysseus rushes forward, and each of those times his mother drifts out of her arms. He can't grasp her. There's nothing to grasp. She is just a memory, in a sense. But as much as Apollo emphasizes mortality in the sense of you will die, here we see the same emphasis in terms of death is final. Anticlea will not come back. Odysseus cannot 
ever embrace her again. You can try all you want. Three times rush forward. It doesn't matter. She is dead. Lost. Completely cut off from Odysseus. And I want to sort of stress that connection. Because just as much as mortality and fate are a huge part of the Iliad, here we see it becoming a huge part of the Odyssey as well. And this isn't fate in the sense of, like, you are doomed to do X, even though that's also present here. Remember, Tiresias just told him, you are doomed to do X. Um, but at the same time, what the Greeks, what Homer especially is emphasizing here is that, like, the basic human experience um, for Patroclus and Diomedes, the inability to fight the gods, for Odysseus, the inability to turn back death, this is binding. This is final, total. As much as we may talk about supernatural um, elements, as much as we may talk about immortal gods or, you know, mighty Heracles who achieved immortality, Homer is stressing, no, that's, that's not how the way things work. People die, death is final. Um, you don't fight the gods, they control your life completely. Um, there's no way back. Anticlea and Odysseus will never have a hug again. That's the way it is. Um, and it's heartbreaking. Like, Odysseus just wants to hug his mom, and he can't. Like, he hasn't hugged his mom in 20-plus years. He finally sees her, and he can't do anything about it. No hugs. No embrace. They'll never be together again. Um, and notice his mother's answer to the question, why can't we at least hug? Are you just a phantom? And she says, oh, my child, most ill-fated of men, it is not that Persephone is deceiving you. This is the way it is with mortals. When we die, the sinews no longer hold flesh and bones together. The fire destroys these as soon as the spirit leaves the white bones, and the ghost flutters off and is gone like a dream. Hurry now to the light and remember these things so that later you may tell them to your wife. Notice the description here. When we die, the sinews no longer hold flesh and bones together. The fire destroys these. The body that Anticlea has in death is not physical it is not material she is not a person in the same way that you and i are people she doesn't have a body in a sense she is just a ghost um like she stresses as soon as the spirit leaves the white bones and the ghost flutters off is and is gone like a dream um whatever she is is ethereal abstract in some sense non-material um she can't be hugged because hugging is a physical action. Um, that's not how it works in death. She's not like a trick, but she isn't as substantial as she used to be. And I want to stress that because we're going to see that elsewhere in this conversation as well. Like, first off, Odysseus runs into a bunch of women, apparently, like the wives and daughters of heroes of old. And, like, some of them we know and some of them we don't know. We get a long bit with Tyro, who is apparently, like, important to someone, I guess. 
Um, she conceived Peleus, so she's Achilles's grandmother, apparently. And then we meet Antiope, who found, who like is one of the major figures in the founding of Thebes. And we get Alcmene, the mother of Heracles. We see Megara, the wife of Heracles. We see Epicaste, Oedipus's mother, you know, the one he accidentally slept with that one time. We see Chloris, who is really beautiful, but like not sure why she's important. Um, we see Leda, the mother of Castor and Polydukes. We see Iphimedea. We see Phaedra and Procnus and Ariadne and Mera and Clymene, most of which, like, barely get a mention in here. Um, but I think it's significant that we do see the women first. Um, like, at this point, remember, we've interacted with three shades. We've interacted with poor Elpinor, who, you know, fell off the roof and died. So one dude, but it makes sense. He's got like other reasons to be there. And then we've got Tiresias, who Odysseus is literally there to see. Like he's fighting off the other shades to keep them from coming close. Then we get Alcmene, the woman who is dead, who is the closest to Odysseus. And then we get a whole bunch of other women, which I think is interesting. Like, because we're going to talk about the men in a moment. Like we're going to have... Like, Odysseus is talking about all these women coming up, and apparently he starts boring his audience. So you'll notice, like, from pages 342 to 343, there's, like, Alcinous is talking to Odysseus, and Odysseus is, you know, saying, well, I'm sorry to bore you guys, like, it's kind of time to go to sleep, right? Like, we gotta, we gotta leave in the morning, so maybe we should cut off this tale a little short. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to give you a whole bunch of presents and we need some time to get that together. So you'll stay another day, which means you can spend all night singing to us. And then like tomorrow we'll get all the gifts together and then we'll take you home. No big deal. Um, so Odysseus goes on with his story. But notice like Odysseus is suspecting that they look bored. And Alkinous, as soon as he's asked, wants to know about the, the heroes, like the men. Um, so you, you'll notice line 380, tell me this as accurately as you can. Did you see any of your godlike comrades who went with you to Troy and met their fate there? The Greeks are bored by the women's stories. Get us, get us the men folk. That's, that's the much better stuff. Um, but Homer and Odysseus for that matter, emphasize the women. Um, this, like we spend a good two pages and then some talking about just all of these random women who show up. And I find that interesting. Like, I'm not entirely sure what to take away with it, or at least except in, like, the context of, like, the other women that Homer is interested in, especially in this text. But I think it's important that um, when we talk about death, when we talk about memory, Odysseus and Homer seem to associate it more with the work of women than they do with the work of men. Um, like, remember, Alcmene is the daughter of the hero, that's how she's introduced. Um, she is the daughter of Autolycus, who was Odysseus's grandfather. He is this big deal hero, and we're going to hear more about Autolycus later in the in the book because apparently Odysseus has a deep connection to Autolycus um, through Alcmene. But it's not Autolycus we see. Like Autolycus doesn't show up in this conversation. Alcmene does, um, and I suspect that the reason why we see the women first is because they are more deeply connected in Homer's mind with loss. Remember, in the Iliad, when Hector dies and when Hector is visiting Troy like between battles, it's the women he t tends to spend the most time with. Hecuba, his mother, Helen, who his, quote, 
friend question mark um and drama key his wife like these are the people who are primarily associated with mourning over hector um and it is kind of for the greeks women's work to mourn like in the same way that it is men's work to you know stiff upper lip and all that rot and you know well well he's dead not getting any deader time to you know go do stuff plant plant the fields and go to war again like move on that's how we're supposed to work here like the one men man who we do see weeping at any significant length for you know lost people we see achilles do it for patroclus and we see odysseus do it because he's just gone for so long um it is appropriate for them to grieve it is appropriate for them to suffer um these losses but women it's very much central to their lives like the the men who die are their protectors they are their loved ones they are the reason for being in a sense um and as much as that might be like backwards and you know like disrespectful to women from the greek perspective i do think that there's something something remarkable and something honorable about the the preeminence that they get here that homer is sort of glorifying women um talking about how important they are to the business of memory to the business of you know protecting the the memory of these heroes protecting their husbands and their fathers and keeping their legacy alive um remember the muses are women as well and every in both of these epics homer starts by invoking the muses um calliope sing of rage calliope sing of memory even hesiod started with an invocation to the muses back of the theogony um the muses women across the board are the keepers of memory um they are the most connected to these emotional losses um and when odysseus wanders into the realm of the dead it seems that they are the ones who are most concerned with their families like the dead dudes are all being dudes i guess distracted by stuff dudes get distracted with fighting and honor and all that stuff as we'll see with achilles but the women the women rush forward they remember life in a way that the men seem not to um but let's go ahead and look at the men because i think there is more to be taken away there like as much as homer gives us all of those women folk it's hard to sort of pluck out what is important about their appearance like it just seems like a list in some way except insofar as every one of them is connected to the people they have lost connected to the stories of the men uh that are relevant to odysseus at this point um but let's let's look at the the couple of heroes that odysseus does run into in the latter half of this book um so after alkinous talks to odysseus and requests tell tell us about the trojan heroes um the first one that we talk about is agamemnon um so line 395 when holy persephone had scattered the women's ghosts there came the ghost of agamemnon son of atreus distraught with grief around him were gathered those who died with him in aegisthus's house he knew me as soon as he drank the dark blood he cried out shrilly tears welling in his eyes and he stretched out his hands trying to touch me but he no longer had anything left of the strength he had in the old days in those muscled limbs i wept when i saw him and with pity in my heart i spoke to him these winged words notice agamemnon like alcmene 
doesn't have a physical body. There's no strength left in his hands. He tries to embrace Odysseus. He tries to give him a hug or like shake his hand and nothing. So Odysseus says, Son of Atreus, king of men, most glorious Agamemnon, what death laid you low? Did Poseidon sink your fleet at sea after hitting you hard with hurricane winds? Or were you killed by enemy forces on land as you raided their cattle and flocks of sheep or fought to capture their city and women? Notice Odysseus's assumption here is you had troubles on the trip. Like, obviously Odysseus assumes that. He also is having huge troubles on the trip. Um, and notice the initial assumptions. Like, oh, did you get shipwrecked? Did Poseidon take out your boat? Not that Odysseus is kind of suspicious of Poseidon wrecking his friends at this point in time. But also, did you get killed by enemy forces during a raid? Like, were you on the way home and you stopped to take on supplies by, like, raiding some town? Remember, that's what Odysseus did after leaving Troy as well, and then got wrecked. Um, and Agamemnon responds, Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, my crafty Odysseus, no. Poseidon did not sink my fleet at sea after hitting us hard with hurricane winds, nor was I killed by enemy forces on land. Aegisthus was the cause of my death. He killed me with the help of my cursed wife after inviting me to a feast in his house, slaughtered me like a bull at a manger, so I died a most pitiable death, and all around me my men were killed relentlessly, like white-tusked swine for a wedding banquet or dinner party in the house of a rich and powerful man. You have seen many men cut down, both in single combat and in the crush of battle, but your heart would have grieved as never before at the sight of us lying around the wine bowl and the laden tables in that great hall. The floor steamed with blood, but the most piteous cry I ever heard came from Cassandra, Priam's daughter. She had her arms around me down on the floor when Clytemnestra ran her through from behind. I lifted my hands and beat the ground as I lay dying with a sword in my chest, but that bitch, my wife, turned her back on me and would not shut my eyes or close my lips as I was going down to death. Nothing is more grim or more shameless than a woman who sets her mind on such an unspeakable act as killing her own husband. I was sure I would be welcomed home by my children and all my household, but she, with her mind set on stark horror, has shamed not only herself, but all women to come, even the rare good one. There is a lot to unpack here. Um, so let's start with sort of where Agamemnon is coming from here. Um, remember, like Agamemnon also heading home from, from Troy, from Ilium. Um, has a relatively uneventful journey, certainly in comparison to Odysseus. Remember, too, that when Agamemnon left, it was in a bad situation. Remember, like, everybody's on Agamemnon's island, and Agamemnon is about to, like, shove off, and they're all getting ready to go to Troy, but everyone is becalmed. There's no wind. If there's no wind, you can't get anywhere. So they're sort of praying and sacrificing and sending to oracles, and they're like, all right, what do we do? What do we do to get the wind going? And the oracle comes back and is like, Agamemnon, you must sacrifice your daughter. And Agamemnon's like, oh, okay, no problem. So he sacrifices his daughter and the wind starts blowing and they're off. Now, as we talked about back in our Trojan War discussion, Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, does not like this plan. For one thing, she's not wrong. Like, the, the Trojan War is dumb. Like, Homer emphasizes it's dumb. Hector emphasizes it's dumb in the Iliad. Like, it's this wild goose chase of a mission, and, you know, it's largely about, like, a bunch of 
jerk heroes proving their honor. Like we've talked about how frivolous the hope the Trojan War might be. Um, certainly from Clytemnestra's perspective, it's just a bunch of posturing by a bunch of overblown, you know, Greek heroes. And they kill her daughter for it. So Clytemnestra plots against Agamemnon. She apparently hooks up with Aegisthus, probably both physically and, you know, intellectually. And when Agamemnon comes home, they, like, get that shirt that doesn't have holes, and he's, like, stuck in the shirt, and then they stab him, and then they, like, kill all of Agamemnon's troops and all of Agamemnon's court, and they kill Cassandra, and, like, everyone dies. It's a giant bloodbath. Um... Notice the importance for our themes as well, though. Like, there's a theme thing here, and there's a plot thing here, and there's probably even more. Um, but notice, first, this is the single most gigantic violation of the hospitality laws that we have seen yet. Like, as much as we've seen, you know, the the suitors taking advantage of the hospitality of Odysseus's house, of uh, Telemachus and Penelope, as much as we've seen, like, Polyphemus completely disregarding the, the hospitality laws, um, as much as, like, he's like, oh, we're Cyclopes, we're really strong, we don't care about what Zeus does, so I'm not worried, and I'm gonna eat your crew. Um, as much as we've seen, like, Odysseus shows up at the one island asking for refuge and there are a bunch of cannibals who try and sink all of his ships. Like, we've seen hospitality messed with a lot, but usually by monsters or by, like, divine figures who can get away with it, um, or it's being messed with on the other end, like to, like the suitors uh, with Telemachus. They're receiving hospitality and they're just going too far with it. Here we see an actual mortal like, among mortals, total betrayal and violation of the basic hospitality that's expected. Agamemnon returns home. Like, this isn't even a guest hospitality thing. Um, this is Agamemnon comes back to his own house and is murdered by his wife, by his family, by a usurper. Um, notice how he stresses this. Um, nothing is more grim or sh more shameless than a woman who sets her mind on such an unspeakable act as killing her own husband. As much as this is a hospitality thing, this is also a role of women in Greek society thing. Like, Penelope is the perfect wife because she is loyal. Because after 30 years of being separated from her husband, she does not take on a new lover. She does not, like, betray him. She does not marry and give the his kingdom over to somebody else. Like, she craftily and carefully protects Odysseus's livelihood and legacy as much as she possibly can. Clytemnestra, on the other hand, totally screws over Agamemnon. Kills him. Like, forget, like, I married somebody else because I didn't think you were coming home. No, she, like, waits. She plots. She actively prepares for Agamemnon to get home so she can wreck him and take all of his stuff and start a new life with Aegisthus. Um, this is exactly the wrong thing for a woman to do. This is everything that the Greeks have been talking about with, like, Pandora, the curse of women among men. Um, this is absolutely Medea, like, devouring 
all of her family members, like killing off her brother and cutting him up into little pieces to distract her father, or like just murdering or tricking other people into murdering perfectly good men who were just trying to get along, um, killing her own children, uh, killing Jason's bride. Like this is the paradigmatic example of the worst thing a woman can do. Not just betray her family, but murder her husband, her, you know, breadwinner, her protector, her paterfamilias. Um, so on the one hand, this is a hospitality thing. On the, one, on the other hand, this is like a, what is the role of women in the household? What does the perfect wife look like thing? But notice that Agamemnon presents this as a suggestion, as a recommendation. Um, that bitch, my wife, turned her back on me and would not shut my eyes or close my lips as I was going down to death. Nothing is more grim or more shameless than a woman who sets her mind on such an unspeakable act as killing her own husband. I was sure I would be welcomed home by my children and all my household, but she, with her mind set on stark horror, has shamed not only herself but all women to come, even the rare good one. He is stressing Clytemnestra's cruelty, her betrayal, is so powerful that it not only reflects on her, this is not a myth about Clytemnestra, but this myth is now a object lesson to every Greek man. Do not trust your wife. This is literally and figuratively a newfound lesson, a new way of understanding women. She has not only shamed herself, but all women to come. Every woman, everywhere, from now on, is going to have to prove to her husband that she is loyal. That she is not like Clytemnestra. Because the default suspicion at this point about women is going to be that they will murder us when our back is turned. Um, this is what Agamemnon is stressing. And, this, and like Homer is aware of the mythic function here. Like, the fact that the, we have this myth of Clytemnestra betraying Agamemnon and murdering him for the purpose of educating young men, don't trust your women folk. Like, it's, it's exactly what Agamemnon says here. She is shamed not only herself, but all women. This lesson is universal. It's something that everyone should be aware of. Um, and it, he goes on, like, after Odysseus has, you know sympathize with Agamemnon's plight he says so don't go easy on your own wife either or tell her everything you know tell her some things but keep some hidden but your wife will not bring about your death Odysseus Icarius's daughter your wife Penelope is far too prudent she was newly wed when she when we went to war we left her with a baby boy still at the breast who must by now be counted as a man and prosperous his father will see him when he comes and he will embrace his father as his only right but but my wife did not let me even fill my eyes with the sight of my son. She killed me before I could do even that. But let me tell you something, Odysseus. Beat your ship secretly when you come home. Women just can't be trusted anymore. Now, notice that he kind of flip-flops here. On the one hand, he's stressing, don't go easy on your wife. Don't trust her. Come home secretly. Women can't be trusted anymore. Again, Clytemnestra has shamed all women. She is now the example, the paradigm. So he is warning Odysseus, when you get home, be careful. Tread lightly. Penelope may have set a trap for you. Um, she may not be as loyal as you think. 
But at the same time, he's like, wait, no, this is Penelope we're talking about. Icarus' daughter. She's way too prudent. She was left in really good hands when you left her. This is not like Clytemnestra, who is, like, old and kind of looking to get out of the situation, and she's bitter about the death of her daughter anyway. Um, she's like, wait, no. As much as Agamemnon says, watch out for your wife, he then turns around and says, wait, no, Penelope is probably fine. But then he turns around again, watch out for your wife. Women can't be trusted anymore. Um, part of this, I'm sure, again, speaks to our theme. Part of this is definitely speaking to the plot. Like, Odysseus is getting a real deal warning here, and Odysseus is going to take it seriously. Like, Odysseus is going to think to himself, wait, I should be careful when I come home. I have no idea what's awaiting me. Um, I don't know if Penelope has been plotting. Like, as much as we just heard from, from Anticlea that, like, everything was great, Penelope was still loyal, you know, by the time that Odysseus actually does get home, he's had enough time to think about what Agamemnon said, and there's been enough time that things might have changed since he talked to Anticlea. So, this whole description that Agamemnon presents is very much a foil to Penelope and Odysseus. Um, like, here is both the best possible scenario for a homecoming, i.e. Penelope, who has been loyal, has kept the fire going all this time, has protected your house and your livelihood, versus Clytemnestra, who as soon as Agamemnon walks in the door, she stabs him and kills all of his troops. Um, but on the other hand, I think we're also seeing something about Agamemnon, like, in his current state. Um... Remember, he is dead. He is a shade. We are speaking to Agamemnon, the dead guy. And Agamemnon seems unable to get out of his own head about his own death. Like, notice that how he tracks here. Don't go easy on your own wife or tell her everything you know. Tell her some things, but keep some hidden. But your wife won't bring about your death, Odysseus. Not, not Penelope. But then he's back to his own suffering. So, like, line 458 is, don't go easy on your own wife, where, you know, here is the object lesson, Clytemnestra killed me, watch out for your wife. But then by 462, it's, no, oh, your wife isn't going to be that bad. But by 467, or rather 469, my wife did not let me even fill my eyes with the sight of my son. Like, were we talking about Penelope? Wasn't Agamemnon just praising her? But now he's back. He's got this one-track mind about his death, about his family. And then notice what he follows through with on line 475. Tell me truthfully if you've heard anything about my son and where he is living, perhaps in Orchomenaeus or in Sandy Pylos or with Menelaus in Sparta, or for Orestes has not yet perished from the earth. Agamemnon, as much as he tries to sympathize and understand what's going on with Odysseus for like five lines... He is 100% focused on, first, his own death. Like, this is what he talks about. Like, admittedly, Odysseus asks him the question, like, how did you die? And he's like, oh, Clytemnestra, that bitch. She totally murdered me. She betrayed me. She violated hospitality. She wrecked everything and is now, like, the worst among women. Um, he is dead focused on this. He can't get off of it. He's stuck. Like, stuck in a loop, almost. Um... And I think that's an indication that Homer is giving us about what it's like to be dead. Notice that this is followed up with, with Achilles as well. So Achilles is the next person that Odysseus sees, um, as well as like Patroclus and a bunch of the other Trojan heroes, like Ajax, who we'll come back to. 
And Achilles says, Son of Laertes and the line of Zeus, Odysseus, you hard rover, not even you can ever top this, this bold foray into Hades, home of the witless dead and the dim phantoms of men outworn. Um, and Odysseus responds, Achilles, by far the mightiest of the Achaeans, I have come here to consult Tiresias to see if he has any advice for me on how I might get back to rugged Ithaca. I've had nothing but trouble, and have not yet set foot on my native land. But no man, Achilles, has ever been as blessed as you, or ever will be. While you were alive, the army honored you like a god, and now that you are here, you rule the dead with might. You should not lament your death at all, Achilles. Notice Odysseus' assumption is that Achilles is, like, super heroic. He is really honored. Like, he did everything right. So, obviously, in death, he's probably, like, doing a great job. Like, why is he upset about being dead? Death must, for him, be great. And Achilles responds, don't try to sell me on death, Odysseus. I'd rather be a hired hand back up on earth, slaving away for some poor dirt farmer than lord it over all these withered dead. But tell me about that boy of mine. Did he come to the war and take his place as one of the best, or did he stay away? And what about Peleus? What have you heard? Is he still respected among the Myrmidons, or do they dishonor him in Phythia and Hellas, crippled by old age and hand and foot? And I'm not there for him up in the sunlight with the strength I had in wide Troy once when I killed Ilion's best and saved the army. Just let me come with that kind of strength to my father's house, even for an hour, and wrap my hands around his enemies' throats. They would learn what it means to face my temper." Note that both the conversations with Achilles and the conversation with Agamemnon doesn't actually sound like a conversation. Like, I know that this is, you know, ancient Greek poetry and this is like a Homeric epic and, and it doesn't read like, you know, a novel does. I realize that. But what I want to stress here is that there's something kind of uncomfortable and uncanny about both of these conversations. Like, if you were talking to someone, and we've seen conversations, you know, that are, in fact, even-handed in this text. Like, you know, we'll have Nestor talking to somebody, and admittedly he'll start, like, waxing poetic about all of his characters, but at least he'll, like, it'll be relevant. Or you'll have, like, Achilles and Hector talking, or Achilles and Patroclus talking, and it'll be, like, an actual conversation. Notice, everything Odysseus says in both of these conversations is, like, either ignored, or promptly forgotten, or disregarded. Um, like, Odysseus is like, Achilles, it must be great for you to be dead. And Achilles is like, dude, no. Death sucks. I would rather be the poorest subsistence farmer alive than the greatest of heroes dead. Achilles is also, like Agamemnon, focused entirely on himself. Admittedly, his family is part of that. Like, he's asking about Neoptolemus, he asks about Peleus, and, and, like, Odysseus tells him, here are all the things that Neoptolemus did. And Achilles is like, yes, awesome, great, except that he doesn't actually say anything. Um, line 565, So I spoke, and the ghost of swift-footed Achilles went off with huge strides through the fields of Asphodel, filled with joy at his son's preeminence. But that's it. Like, as soon as Achilles gets the news, he's out. Like, he doesn't even thank Odysseus. He's just, my boy is so awesome. What I want to stress here, and what I think Homer is showing us is, like, this idea of death in Greek culture isn't robust. It's not an afterlife in the way that we talk about in the Christian tradition, where there's, like, a heaven or a hell, and in either case, you're, like, doomed there consciously eternally you're gonna like either suffer horrible torments 
wailing and gnashing of teeth forever or you're going to be in paradise and you're going to see god and it's going to be like this huge beatific vision and it's going to like enrich you forever period the end like you are in the christian sense at your best when you are dead like you are stuck with this crappy body that is like shoddy and and it keeps wanting things like food and it gets sick all the time and it's gross and it like it's dirty and and stupid and like it makes you want to do bad things like as much as the christians emphasize when you are dead you are at your best the greeks emphasize that when you're dead you're nothing like you're just a shade a memory of what you used to be agamemnon can't have a civilized conversation with a with odysseus because he's obsessed with his own death with the people in his life what happened to orestes um achilles can't have a civilized conversation with odysseus because he is obsessed with the fact that he is dead as much as he won his honor and he's focusing on that as well for the most part he's just grumpy like he is every bit as sulky as he was in life but notice that they're both focused on who they were like they are only inward looking with the exception of asking about their their relatives the people who should be passing on their honor they are a hundred percent selfish in a sense like there is not a an ounce of like fellow feeling or care like as much as agamemnon tries to embrace odysseus it's really fleeting and he doesn't seem at all interested in odysseus's problems um instead he's just endlessly repeating his own and notice the other heroes bear this out as well like as much as we get achilles gets the good news he's informed about neoptolemus and he apparently like walks away mumbling to himself like really happy that neoptolemus is doing well but but like not actually interacting with odysseus anymore and then we find ajax and remember ajax died because of this this conflict between ajax and odysseus over achilles's armor after achilles dies according to the myth there's this competition between ajax and odysseus odysseus proves the better hero so he wins the armor and ajax gets really upset like he goes insane and he starts like killing people or he would except that like the gods trick him so he kills the livestock instead and they ultimately have to take him out like they kill ajax over his insanity and notice we see ajax here like odysseus remarks on this he says only the ghost of telamonian ajax stood apart still furious with me because i had defeated him in the contest at troy to decide who would get achilles's armor and odysseus petitions him he's like ajax son of flawless telamon are you so are you to be angry with me even in death over that accursed armor the gods must have meant it to be the ruin of the greeks we lost a tower of strength to that armor and yet in a bit he's he notes i spoke but he said nothing he went his way to erebus to join the other souls of the dead he might yet have spoken to me there or i might yet have spoken to him but my heart yearned to see the other ghosts of the dead ajax is also still bitter ajax is also completely inward focused like all these other ghosts are clamoring around trying to get at the blood like apparently drinking blood makes them aware of their surroundings more than they are normally but ajax like his bitterness goes so deeply that he's not even trying to get it um so we get a few more other heroes we see minos the judge we see orion the hunter tidios tantalus sisyphus our usual 
Land of the Dead all stars with their various really interesting punishments like Sisyphus and not being and having to push the rock all the time or Tantalus like constantly hungry can't get food um, and then we get Heracles which would strike us as odd remember Heracles didn't die properly like he was apotheosized it was on the pyre they were getting ready to burn his body and then like someone swept down and like picked him up and now Heracles lives on Olympus and is a god I notice Homer doesn't disagree with this Notice the passage here. And then mighty Heracles loomed up before me, his phantom that is. For Heracles himself feasts with the gods and has as his wife beautiful Hebe, daughter of great Zeus and gold-sandaled Hera. As he moved, a clamor arose from the dead around him as if they were birds flying off in terror. He looked like midnight itself. He held his bow with an arrow on the string and he glared around him as if he were always about to shoot. His belt, a baldric of gold crossing his chest, was stark horror, a phantasmagoria of bears and wild boars and green-eyed lions, of battles and bloodshed, murder and mayhem. May this be its maker's only masterpiece, and may there never again be another like it. Notice, Heracles is apparently broken. Like, he's in two pieces. On the one hand, Odysseus recognizes this is his phantom because Heracles himself feasts with the gods. Homer does not reject the story of the apotheosis of Heracles. Instead, Heracles is both alive, immortal, on Olympus, and dead, a phantom, in Hades. What does that mean? Like, how do we even parse this? The best that I can come up with is that Heracles, like, and the business of being dead is totally different from being alive. Like, it's not even, you know, you die and go to Hades. You die and your memory, your shade, your phantom shows up in Hades. And it is not actually representative of who you are. Like, it's not you in the sense that, you know, you are you when you were alive. Instead, it is just a memory. It cannot change. It cannot grow. It cannot become something new. It cannot learn. Notice how Heracles interacts here. Like, he is constantly walking around with his hand on his bow as if he's about to go hunting. Like, perpetually. He can't get out of this loop. He's wearing this, this belt and this, this, like, gold breastplate. And there's this horrifying image of all of the animals and creatures that he killed. Of all the battles that he participated in. And Odysseus is, like, scared of it. Like, he stresses, you know, it is a masterpiece, but let it be the only one of its kind. There should not be any more of this kind of art, ever, period, the end. Notice the emphasis here. Heracles is also stuck in his ways. And when Odysseus talks to him, again, the assumption is kind of like, oh, you're Heracles, you must be really enjoying it down here and like the paradise part of Hades. And instead, he's, Heracles' only comment is, son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, crafty Odysseus, poor man, do you too drag out a wretched destiny such as I once bore under the rays of the sun? I was a son of Zeus and grandson of Cronus, but I had immeasurable suffering, enslaved to a man who was far less than I and who laid upon me difficult labors. Once he even sent me here to fetch the hound of hell, for he could devise no harder task for me than this. That hound I carried out of the house of Hades with Hermes and gray-eyed Athena as guides. Notice Heracles is only focused on the bad. 
Like, he is the greatest hero in all of Greek culture. He has the best legacy ever. They still tell stories about him all the time. If there is any hero who won at being a hero, it was Heracles. He became a god. And yet the shade can only focus on the bad. I suffered. I was forced to commit all of these labors. I was exhausted. I was so tired. And yet he's forced to keep living that out. He is still hunting. He is still doing epic deeds. He is still struggling, but pointlessly. He's not helping anyone. And yet he's going around like he's constantly vigilant, like he's constantly fighting monsters. What the Greek image of death is, is complicated. Like, I don't presume to understand it. Like, we're only getting a snapshot here in Homer. But it's a fascinating snapshot. Like, the image that we're getting is that, first of all, again, fate is not something you can mess with. All these people are mortal. They are doomed to just sort of, like, wind out their days in this meaningless activity and then die, and then that's it. But when you are dead, you do not have this, like, secondary life. You do not go on being a person in some secondary place. No, what's left of you is just a memory. You are stuck doing the same things that you had done in life over and over again. And in many cases, like Agamemnon, like Ajax, they are fixated on their own death. They can't get over it. Like, how could Agamemnon get over his family betraying them? There's no way. Like, it's not possible. He can't, like, reunite with Clytemnestra. He can't talk to talk it over with her he can't like fix things he can't he certainly can't go back and like undo his killing of his daughter all he can do is dwell on it all he can do is sit there getting bitter being bitter never growing never changing never evolving never becoming better than what he is if anything i think that stresses how important it is that odysseus have a good death that he, you know, complete his big quest where he carries the oar around and, like, people don't even know what an oar is. And he comes back home and he just dies, surrounded by his family, happy, prosperous, in old age, painlessly. No suffering, no betrayal, no nothing. Because maybe then he'll be happy in death. Not because, like, he's growing and changing and having a good life in the underworld, but because that will be his final memory. That will be how he is remembered both by himself and otherwise he won't be happy in the sense that you and i are happy he'll probably still be miserable he'll probably still be fixated on the downsides in his life like heracles is here but at least he'll have something to remember that was good now again there's a lot here and i'm only scratching the surface and it's already like time and now i have to like go over the entirety of book 12 in five minutes um but I think it's really interesting that like Homer, who has stressed mortality and fate throughout these texts, now gives us a glimpse of what the afterlife looks like, and it is literally the same thing. It is just a mirror image of everything that happened in life. As much as fate governs your life and your eventual death, it also governs your afterlife. Whatever happened to you in life, that is all you will ever know in death. You will just be like a record stuck on repeat going over the same track over and over and over again, constantly, pointlessly, meaninglessly. As Achilles stresses, 
Um, I would rather be a hired hand back up on Earth slaving away from some poor dirt farmer than lord it over all these withered dead. There's no point in being dead. Achilles made the wrong choice. He should have lived a full life away from the fields of Ilion, not gone to war and won a bunch of honor. Because what good is honor at the end of the day? What good does honor do all of these dead people? It doesn't matter. Nothing does at this point. Once you're dead, that's it. Game over. Nothing else will ever be relevant or significant. Nothing you do will have any weight. So, on that note, in Odyssey 12, we have, like, the end of the journey. And at this point, we've kind of seen everything happen already. Like, everybody has been warning Odysseus about, you know about not messing with the, the cattle of the sun. Uh, we already know that he's going to run into trouble and like other problems, but not like the devastating ones that really change his fate. Odyssey 12 doesn't actually change the trajectory. If anything, it confirms the trajectory we're on. Like notice even the way that it's structured. Book 12 starts with Circe telling Odysseus about all the stuff he's going to run into. First the sirens, then Scylla and Charybdis, and finally, the Cattle of the Sun, the Island of the Sun. Um, and then we proceed to do all three of those things. We meet the Sirens, we get past Scylla and Charybdis, and then we fail at the Island of the Sun. Like, Book 12 is as scripted as it gets. There's almost nothing new that happens. But I do want to focus on the details here. First off, notice the Sirens. Um... Rather than, like, the, when the Argo passes the Sirens and they just have, like, Odysseus, or, uh, sorry, Orpheus sing a counter-melody and, like, they're, it apparently nullifies the Sirens' song and therefore everyone is just, like, passing over safely and they don't even, like, get... A, they're not even able to hear the Sirens. Um, on the other hand, you've got, like, other stories of people going past the Sirens and they always plug up their ears with wax so they can't hear the Sirens' song. Notice that Odysseus does, in fact, get to hear it. Like, Circe even gives him instructions about how to do it. Um, row past them, first kneading sweet wax and smearing it into the ears of your crew so they cannot hear. But if you yourself have a mind to listen, have them bind you hand and foot upright in the mast step and tie the ends of the rope to the mast. Then you can enjoy the song of the Sirens. Um, she basically says, you can totally listen to the sirens. You just have to make sure that your crew ties you firmly to the mast so you can't, like, actually run off and swim toward them and drown. Um, so that's what he does. Like, he even presents it a little weird. Like, in line 167, he says, she ordered me alone to listen. Like, she did no such thing. She's like, if you want to listen, this is how you do it. Um, but instead, Odysseus frames it as though he has to listen. Like, it's his job. He's got to, he's got to do it. Um, so he follows the instructions, all his crew, they plug up their ears, they tie him to the mast, and then we actually get the song here. Um, note lines 192 to 200. Come hither, Odysseus, glory of the Achaeans. Stop your ship so you can hear our voices. No one has ever sailed his black ship past here without listening to the honeyed sound from our lips. He journeys on delighted and knows more than before. For we know everything that the Greeks and Trojans suffered in wide Troy by the will of the gods. We know all that happens on the teeming earth. Um, notice, once again, we have another temptation to stay rather than be home. Um, and Circe even makes this like explicit in line 44 and 
43. Um, anyone who approaches unaware and hears their voices will never again be welcomed home by wife and children. Once again, this is placed as a direct threat to Odysseus actually getting home. Like the Lotus Eaters, like when the crew is turned into pigs, the danger here is Odysseus will forget about home, that they will never get there. Um, as much as the usual version is like they drown. But notice the, the, what the sirens tempt him with is knowledge. Like, stay with us and we will tell you all of the secrets of the Trojan War. Which, you know, why? Like, Odysseus was there. He didn't need to know any more about the Trojan War. But apparently this is still something he's obsessed with. Like, remember, you know, even when the bard is singing about the exploits of the Trojans, um, in the hall of the Phaeacians, like Odysseus makes a request, tell me about the Trojan horse, like the thing I came up with, um, which probably has to do with honor, but also like to some degree, this is still something important, interesting to Odysseus. He wants to know more. Um, he hasn't even scratched the surface of all there is to know about the Trojan War. Um, but anyway, like obviously they get passed without incident. Odysseus does not break free and like drown himself. Um, so they get past the sirens. Uh, then they meet Scylla and Charybdis. Um, and you'll notice, like, the emphasis that Circe makes is you go past Scylla rather than Charybdis, because Charybdis will wreck your entire boat and kill everyone. Scylla will kill six people, but it's unavoidable. Scylla is immortal. You cannot cut off the heads. Like, she even warns him, if you wait around to put on your helmet, she's just going to, like, snap out and grab t six more people. So, you know, you just got to let this one go. Um, and Odysseus for the most part, warns his crew about what's coming. Like, as soon as Circe tells him, he tells his crew. Um, he's like, all right, so first we're going to run into the sirens. I want you to tie me up. I was ordered to listen to them. Um, for Scylla, nothing. Odysseus doesn't warn them at all. He's like, steer close to that reef. And they're like, okay. And he even makes a point of this. Line 231, I spoke, they obeyed, but I didn't mention Scylla. There was nothing we could do about that. And I didn't want the crew to freeze up, stop rowing and huddle together in the hold. The last thing he wants is to panic them. So he doesn't even tell them about Scylla. Like, as much as he's apparently being upfront with his crew, this is the place where he just doesn't. Largely for their own good. Because, let's be honest, his crew has been a bunch of assholes at this point. Like, they're systematically screwing up Odysseus all over the place. They, they let out the winds. They're the ones who stay too long after they, like, beat up that town and take all their stuff. And as a result, a bunch of people get killed. They're the ones who eat the lotus. Like... They are the ones who get turned into pigs. Like, Odysseus is constantly rescuing his crew from situations. He does not want this one to be an issue. So Scylla eats six of them, no problem. And there we go. We keep on moving. Um, but then we get to Thrinacia. And remember, everyone has warned Odysseus about this. Don't get stuck on Thrinacia. Like, Circe's like, if you can avoid it, don't even land on Thrinacia. Tiresias is like, you're going to land on, on Thrinacia. I know this one. So do not eat the cows. Um, and Odysseus warns his crew. He's like, all right, so we're not going to eat the cows. Everyone, do not eat cows. Absolutely not. Like, forget everything else that I said. Remember, do not eat the cows. This is hugely important. This is how we're going to get totally screwed up. But notice, it's kind of unavoidable by the end of this. Notice how badly Odysseus has to get screwed before the, this crew eats the cows. First off, they land on the island, or rather, like, they're getting, they're getting ready to go past it, and Odysseus is like, okay, we're not stopping on this island. Um, 
Hear my words, men, for all your pain, so I can tell you Tiresias' prophecies and Circe's too. Shun the island of the warmth-giving sun, for there, she said, was our gravest peril. No, row our black ship clear of this island. And the crew is about to mutiny. Eurylochus answers me spitefully, You're a hard man, Odysseus, stronger than other men, and you never wear out. A real iron man who won't allow his crew, dead tired from rowing and lack of sleep, to set foot on shore. Now let's, no, let's give in to a black knight now and make our supper. We'll stay by the ship, board her in the morning, and put out to sea. And this sounds reasonable. Like, Eurylochus and everyone seems to agree, we're just going to stay for the night. And Odysseus notices on, at line 303, I knew then that some god had it in for us, and my words have wings. Eurylochus, it's all of you against me alone, all right, but swear me a great oath. If we find any cattle or sheep on the island, no man will kill a single cow or sheep in his recklessness. So, okay, we're going to be on the island one night. Nobody eat the cows. And everyone's like, all right, we're not going to eat the cows. We totally swear. Everything's great. And then they get marooned. For a month, they're stuck on this island. Zeus turns the winds against them. And Odysseus, at some point, goes up to pray, you know, like you should do, piety, to pray that they, like, let the winds go off and everyone can get out of here. I went off by myself up the island to pray to the gods to show me the way. When I put some distance between myself and the crew and found a spot sheltered from the wind, I washed my hands and prayed to the gods, but all they did was close my eyelids in sleep. Meanwhile, Eurylochus was giving bad advice to the crew. Listen to me, shipmates. Despite your distress, all forms of death are hateful, but to die of hunger is the most wretched way to go. What are we waiting for? Let's drive off the prime beef in that herd and offer sacrifice to the gods of broad heaven. Notice how this plays out. So first, Odysseus is like, nope, not stopping on the island. No way. I know that this is where we all get screwed. No way are we stopping on this island. And Eurylochus is like, if we do not stop on this island, we will kick you off this boat and you can swim to Ithaca. And Odysseus is like, all right, fine. One night, one night we are spending on the island. Do not eat any of the cows. Swear to me, you will not eat the cows. And they swear. And Odysseus is like, one night, that's it. One night, it's going to be fine. And then they get stranded. Zeus strands them for a month. And then Odysseus goes to pray to make things better. Like, let's pray to Zeus. Let's fix this situation. And instead of successfully getting through the prayer, the gods put him to sleep. And while the gods put him to sleep and he is unaware of what's going on, Eurylochus convinces everybody to eat the cows and everyone gets fucked. But notice, why are the gods mad about this? Like, we see there's a conversation with Zeus. Helios, you go on shining among the Zeus and for mortal men on the grain-giving earth. I will soon strike their ship with sterling lightning and shatter it to bits on the wine-purple sea. Like, Zeus is like, oh man, they eat your cows? Those bastards! I'm gonna kill every last one of them, except for Odysseus, of course, because fate. Why? The only reason that they ate the cows was because Zeus friggin' marooned them on this island, put Odysseus to sleep. Like, they fucked him so hard here. Why are they mad about this? Why are the gods upset? Like, they, they literally contrived this situation for Odysseus, made it completely unavoidable. And then once it was completely unavoidable, they're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe he ate your cows. We are going to wreck him so hard. What is Zeus's game here? Obviously, this is just him and the gods having it out for Odysseus. Like, every step of the way. And it's not fair. It's not even remotely fair. It is not just in any extent of the imagination. 
Zeus screws Odysseus over, and then because he has screwed Odysseus over, he screws Odysseus over some more. That's it. Like, not even remotely fair. And this is what he gets from Calypso. This is why, like, Odysseus can actually talk about, you know, what are the gods doing while I am sailing on this ocean? Um, but keep that in mind. Like, the gods are not playing fair in this situation. They don't have to. Like, as much as this is about fate, as much as this is about what must necessarily happen, like, even the gods seem bound up with it. Like, Zeus forces Odysseus to eat the cows. Like, there is no way that Odysseus can get out of it. He takes literally every precaution he can think of, short of, like, getting thrown off his own ship. And yet, the gods screw him over, to the point that he has to eat the cows, that he cannot stop the cows from being eaten, and then the gods screw him over for eating the cows. It's not fair. Not even a little bit. And to the Greeks, that's just how it goes. That's what fate looks like, folks. It's not fair. Don't expect it to be. As much as Zeus is the god of justice, it is a Zeus justice only. It doesn't have to make sense by our standards. It doesn't even have to be fair by our standards. Justice is bullshit in the Greek pantheon. Zeus does what he wants. And Poseidon and everybody else for that matter. Alright, so that one already went long. Sorry about that. For next week, we will talk about the rest of the Odyssey. Um, again, don't worry about any other lectures for this week. You can definitely listen to the first half of the lecture if you want to be prepared for the quiz, but, you know, don't feel obligated. Focus on the research paper. That should be your priority at this point. We will talk about it more for the Q&A. Feel free to ask questions if there was something we didn't talk about in this lecture. So I hope you have enjoyed this one and enjoy the ones to come. Stay safe. Stay well. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>